Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Well, guys, I know we have a, uh, a, a busy show this week. The, uh, the SCOTUS term is over, but it's still, um, still lots, of, lots of news happening out there in the legal world. Uh, everyone should stick around to the end of the show. We have a really great bonus uh, sort of feature with a couple of really interesting interviews with uh, general counsels of big companies, how they've reacted to the coronavirus crisis. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, some good chats we had there. Um, and we've got some other coronavirus news in this show today, too, because tons of legal news related to the pandemic. It just won't stop. Um, but before that, I think, Alex, you were going to tell us about um, a, a rather sad story that happened in New Jersey this week. Yeah, uh, really sort of tragic episode playing out in New Jersey this week. Uh, there was a gunman who murdered the son of federal judge Esther Salas and also wounded her husband in the attack. Uh, the only suspect in the case is an attorney who actually had appeared before the judge and often disparaged her in his personal writings. In another odd twist, just yesterday, the suspect was linked to the murder of a different attorney on the other side of the country in California <laughs> earlier this month. Very shocking story. Obviously, sort of jolted a lot of the a lot of the legal news media, um, and it's taken some interesting turns, even just in the few days that it's been a story. So, um, I, yeah, I'm sure most listeners have heard the rough outlines of you know that a um, you know that this attack on a judge happened. But sort of, what do we know up to today, up to Thursday, about what happened? Yeah. So this uh, the the incident in question took place on uh, Sunday, and. It was. It happened at at Judge Solace's home, which was in North Brunswick, New Jersey. Someone dressed as a FedEx delivery driver came to the door. The door was answered, and the suspect fatally shot uh, Solace's twenty year old son, Daniel Anderl. Uh, the gunman also shot the judge's husband, Mark Anderl, who's an attorney himself. He survived the attack, but he remains in critical condition as of as of today, Thursday. Law enforcement has identified a suspect. Uh, he's an attorney named Roy Den Hollander. We're going to talk about him a little bit more in a moment because some things that have come out have been uh, fairly interesting, to say the least. But he was found dead in his car in the Catskills in upstate New York on Monday, apparently from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, actually, in the car with him at the time, there was a photograph of the uh, chief judge, uh, uh, New York State Chief Judge Janet DeFiore. Um, authorities haven't sort of have no evidence of a planned attack on DeFior, but that was uh, another interesting turn. Um, and then, as I as I just hinted, just yesterday, the FBI said it had evidence linking Den Hollander to the murder of an attorney in San Bernardino County, California, earlier this month. That man's name was Mark Angelucci, which was a similar fact pattern that was in play as with the judge or, uh, at the at the judge's home. Uh, Angelu- uh, Angelucci was shot by a man pretending to be a delivery driver on July 11th. So it's going in a lot of different directions pretty quickly. Yeah, there's, it's, it's a really terrible fact pattern here. And it's connected to so many elements of the legal community. It's judges being targeted, other attorneys, and then the the um, gunman, the alleged gunman, was an attorney himself. So what yeah. do we know about him? I know some interesting stuff has been unearthed about what he practiced and, and how he presented himself. Yeah, so the the thing to know about him is that he openly marketed himself 
promoted himself as a men's rights attorney. Uh, he wrote a lot about bringing legal cases to combat, you know, you know the the scourge of feminism and PC culture and things like that. Which uh, you know, if you're on the internet for even a second at all, you know how that stuff tends to go. Mm-hmm. Um, he 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 brought cases challenging things like feminist curriculum at universities, uh, ladies' night specials at bars and restaurants being discriminatory against men. But the thing that sort of brought him, so far as we know, uh, as of today, the, the the main sort of legal argument that he made before Judge Salas was a case that he brought in 2015, which challenged the U.S. military's male-only draft policy. Um, he was actually, his client in that case was a woman. So while he was advocating for a woman, he made clear in his descriptions of the case that he was, it was, it was just another avenue to sort of attack this what he what he considered a, dis, a a policy that was discriminatory against men that only men could be eligible for the draft. His exchanges with Judge Salas in that case were mostly unremarkable, but he often uh, made just sort of open, virulent personal attacks on the judge in his own personal writing. He wrote sort of this lengthy memoir on one of his websites that wrote that Solace was, quote, a lazy and incompetent Latina judge appointed by Obama. He also tra- he also basically just, like, trashed her resume. She was a public defender before she was a judge, and he basically said she was put on the bench as an affirmative action case. It was very unpleasant. Um, Den Hollander eventually dropped off that case. He was replaced by other counsel uh, last year. But then this, uh, and, you know, it seemed pretty clear he was... It, or rather, it seemed to present a clean narrative. The suspect in the case, you know, was trying a case against a judge. He clearly had animosity towards the judge. It became a little bit complicated with the with the murder of Angelucci, um, like I said, who was killed earlier this month in California. Now, he also held himself out as a men's rights advocate. He brought cases in the same vein as Den Hollander did. And in fact, he pursued a similar case against the military draft in Texas. Now, he won an order declaring that unconstitutional. It's actually pending before the Fifth Circuit. Now, Den Hollander wrote about that case on his website. He never mentioned Angelucci specifically, but he had sort of said that he was upset that the Texas lawyers bringing that case were unable to get an injunction against the draft system. Um, so very bizarre. It was, you know, this is sort of a guy who was, you know, arguing for the same types of things that he would argue. And now he's a suspect in that person's murder as well. Um, and that's, yeah, yeah that's, that, that, that's the extent of the facts as we know them now. That's a really unexpected turn of events. I mean, there's a few twists and turns here. First is that um, one of the tenets of being an attorney is that we often say, particularly uh, when we're talking about criminal cases, that everyone deserves a defense. And even on the civil side, that everyone deserves to have a good lawyer. So you can't always uh, say that just because someone is a men's rights attorney that they necessarily yeah. have any virulent views against women or affirmative action or those things. Mm-hmm. So so you start there, but then you learn that he did speak out about this judge in particular. So that seems to, like you said, be a clean narrative. It's it's very odd that then he's being tied to someone who purportedly was on the same side of the ideological spectrum as he was. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, he's not, like, again, everybody's, he's just a suspect and all of that, and many more things have come to light, and we'll have to see how that goes. Um, but the uh, the thing that this actually brought up, sort of at least in the first couple of days, there was a discussion playing out about... Um, 
the idea of the securities or the, 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 the protections and security that we provide for judges at all levels of the judicial system. And Abraco um, wrote a really nice story for us about um, incidents like this that have cropped up in the past. There have been attempts on judges' lives um, yeah. uh, at, at, at many levels of the, of the judicial system before, and states take it upon themselves to enact different measures to address those concerns. Now, in short, like most things like this, the, the, the thing to know is that while there is usually some level of protection that judges receive, it varies a lot depending on the state. Most states have laws on the books that remove judges' personal information from databases. So like, I mean, obviously beyond like providing a security detail, just sort of shielding where judges live is sort of a basic first step that most people have taken or most mm-hmm. governments have taken. Um, but again, the breadth of that of those laws can vary. There um, are cases where sometimes the state is in charge of scrubbing that information from public databases itself. There are other jurisdictions where judges are required to do the scrubbing on their own, which seems kind of strange if you don't think about this area of the law very often. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different things at play. Abra also talked to a former official with the U.S. Marshal's Office, which, of course, is in charge of securing the nation's prisons, who said that, you know, federal judges only get sort of round-the-clock protection, like like monitor security detailed when they face definitive threats or happen to be hearing, like, a high-profile case. So there aren't always... That, yeah. I thought that was such an interesting aspect of this, right? Because mm-hmm. we, we associate sort of, you know... Uh, bodyguards and around the clock protection with 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 the executive branch and with with legislators and yeah. but when you think about what a judge does the the you know hearing individual criminal cases sometimes dealing with very dangerous people the mm-hmm. uh you know the the level of of public you know awareness of this person perhaps is is lower which sure. maybe explains why they don't the, the idea is that they don't need quite as much but at the same time, the personal interaction with people who could really want to do you harm mm-hmm. is perhaps even greater. So it, it's it. Hopefully, this will spark a conversation. At least some good thing could come out of this of reassessing how we think about judge safety. Yeah, definitely. For our main story this week, we are back on the coronavirus litigation front, um, something we've talked about quite a bit on the show, whether it's, uh, you know, how law firms are being impacted, criminal charges over scams and fraudulent behavior, mm-hmm. all the cases filed by retailers and restaurants against their insurers, all that and much more we've talked about. But one pretty big aspect of this that we I don't think we really have hit on yet are court cases that are challenging the public health measures that are designed to combat the virus, sort of, you know, uh, the, the the very most basic form of coronavirus litigation here. Yeah. Um, and uh, over the past week, we've seen a, a number of uh, big rulings in federal courts and in state courts over 
sort of the power that states have to impose these measures and the cases that have been brought against them. So um, I, I thought it would be good to sort of run us through some of those big rulings. It is a good idea. Um, and it... I, I remember when things first started getting shut down and there was, you know, we obviously come at this from like, you know, having our eyes towards a legal angle of the story or whatever. And there was a sense as like, you know, when things first begin to close, there might be some period of understanding or like, a, you know, ceasefire period or whatever. But we're clearly past that. We're into month five of this. And I know it's getting pretty ugly in some cases. So I think... We wanted to start about uh, uh, movie theaters, which I know people are like often talking are, are right on the front lines of, of closures. So, yeah, we're going to talk about cases all around the country. But let's start in Michigan, where um, Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, issued an executive order, uh, issued many executive orders like governors around the country. But uh, one of which was closing movie theaters during the pandemic. Yeah, seems pretty self-explanatory uh, that, you know, it's a closed space. That's a place where the virus spreads. Uh, you sit so, close by. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. you know, it's dark. You don't know if somebody's right near you. So um, a, a theater in the Detroit suburbs, uh, at the town of Royal Oak, um, a, a theater called Imagine, uh, challenged that order uh, with a lawsuit saying it violated their First Amendment rights, their their rights to uh, they wanted to have a. Um, a Juneteenth uh, film festival and that this, yeah. uh, you know, infringed on their rights to uh, to free assembly. Um, but a judge ruled this week that the order was constitutional, that it didn't violate the First Amendment. Um, he cited a ruling last month uh, that upheld, f- uh, at least for the time being, uh, a similar restriction in Michigan on gyms. Uh, and that was a, a ruling by the Sixth Circuit. So it had already reached an appellate level. So it was a a big ruling, and and this judge cited that. He said, quote, The individual rights of citizens and entities are subject to some restriction to preserve the public good, and the court must uphold the executive's decision so long as there exists rational speculation that offers conceivable support for the governor's order. It only takes a moment of rational speculation to discover conceivable support for the continued closure of indoor movie theaters. So what they were basically saying is it, it really – they need they only need a little bit of evidence to yeah. you know to 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 get here and it's very clear that that movie theaters are are a risk and that they have a good reason for you know limiting to a certain extent your rights under the first amendment i thought a really interesting aspect of it was that the theater cited its um its cleaning and safety procedures said look we're going to seat people separately we we make sure we do all these different things to mitigate the risk the judge said that under the the First Amendment sort of analysis here that that you go into looking at at an order like this, that stuff doesn't matter. That uh, oh. that that yeah. you've you've cleaned and all this other stuff that doesn't matter when we're assessing sort of this kind of question. That's um, really interesting because you would imagine a lot of businesses would immediately jump to try try to present that kind of evidence, yeah. right? All, exactly. the, all the all the mitigation stuff you do, right? Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, there's actually going to be more stuff coming out of Michigan. Uh, there's a case pending before the state Supreme Court that's challenging sort of in a broader sense um, the scope of, of uh, the governor's power to impose these orders. Um, and just today, uh, on Thursday the 23rd, a judge issued um, – uh, refused to issue a restraining order that would have allowed for this large wedding to go forward. They had argued – um, sort of on religious freedom grounds that they should be exempt from this. So lots of stuff happening in Michigan. We're going to see more orders on these uh, on these uh, health measures coming forward. 
So you mentioned gyms when you were talking about um, how the judge decided that movie theater case, that there was a similar one about gyms in Michigan. Yeah. Has has the gym issue come up other places? Gyms have been a big tension point throughout the crisis. I don't know if it's just people who go to gyms a lot are really zealous to get back in there. Or <laughs> I mean, what? Why people but, yeah. are feeling like really cooked up in their houses. Yeah. So I think yeah. I, I understand that one maybe even more than movie theaters, even though I'm a movie buff. I get that people are like, I got to get out of here and do something to not just be, you know, sitting around my house. I just want to say on a personal note, COVID is the only reason I'm not in the gym. That's definitely <laughs> if, 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 if not for this, I would be in there. Right. But in any case, but I mean, even yes, more so it's a, it's a, it, it's a flashpoint, obviously, even more so than than movie theaters, though, gyms are are a very dangerous place because sure. you're spraying this stuff into the air as you're working out it makes wearing masks more difficult there's, breathing heavy there's yeah. sweat everywhere so um in arizona uh governor doug ducey uh issued his own executive order um similar to the ones we were just talking about in michigan and that we saw around the country um that closed gyms uh and a, a chain of gyms called exponential fitness they're a chain of boutique gyms um sued uh challenging the order arguing that it violated um the constitution's guarantees of due process and an equal protection uh so last week a judge in Arizona, a federal judge ruled on that lawsuit and ruled that, um, uh, no, the, the, the governor's order passes constitutional muster. Um, she said that she deeply sympathizes. That's a quote, uh, with the businesses that are affected by the closure, consumers who want to use those businesses, but said that the, the science is just extremely clear that the, that, you know, Gyms are, are are a uniquely dangerous place during this during this time and pose a unique risk for public safety, and that the the executive branch's decision to shut down gyms was supported by that evidence. Um, she had a pretty eloquent quote that I thought sort of illustrated the dispute and really got to the idea of you know how we're using this evidence to support things and whether yeah, and the role yeah. of the different. So quote. In our constitutional republic, the decisions of whether, when, and how to exercise emergency powers amidst a global pandemic belong not to the unelected members of the federal judiciary, but to the elected officials of the executive branch. So what she's saying is this is really a question that we have given to the executive branch. Mm -hmm. And as long as they show some evidence, it's something that we're going to greenlight. It's not something that we can just wade into and and change. And here, it's not that they had some evidence. It's that they had overwhelming evidence that yeah. gyms are a dangerous place at this time. So there's a bit of commonality in what we've talked about so far. We've talked about gyms and movie theaters. And in both of those cases, you know, the judges are effectively saying at this early stage, you don't have to show much uh, for these cases to uh, be, be forestalled. But I, but I know that you also wanted to tell us about a case, uh, I think, in Kentucky that's uh, uh, maybe on a little more solid ground at this at this point. So yeah, so late last week, a uh, a state judge in Kentucky indicated that he was set to strike down Governor Andy Bashir's uh, various COVID public health orders, um, orders like mandating masks in public and limiting occupancy inside certain businesses, standard COVID stuff. Um, the order came in a case that had been filed by the the state's attorney general. It's an elected official, obviously doesn't always agree with the governor, and uh, here is in direct conflict with the governor um, about the way that that um, these public health orders should should be issued. Um, 
the lawsuit argued that the rules were arbitrary, that they violated the the state, the Kentucky state constitution. Um, the ruling, if it if it had come out, would have abruptly ended those rules. But on Friday, the um, the state supreme court stepped in, said, "Look, um, we're going to stay all lower court rulings on this. We're going to hear this case. We're going to issue a, a statewide ruling." The quote. Given the need for a clear and consistent statewide public health policy and recognizing that the Kentucky legislature has expressly given the governor broad executive powers in a public health emergency, the court orders a stay of all injunctive relief. So the court's not saying one way or the other whether or not this is, you know, these this case makes sense. They obviously did say that the the legislature has given the the governor broad powers. So that's maybe uh, tipping their hand if you want to read the tea leaves. But Basically, what they're saying is it doesn't make sense for a bunch of different state yeah. district level judges to be issuing weird little injunctions. Yeah, we're like going to rule on this. Exactly. We're going to rule on this and we're going to set statewide rules. So we will see what happens there. Um, I will say before before we get out of here that there are, there's a lot more of this stuff coming along the way. We saw a, a few of these rulings, as I just mentioned, and, and there are even more this week. Um, but uh you know there's there are many other cases like this high profile cases like this that are that are pending and and waiting for rulings um Georgia's governor is is suing the city of Atlanta over a requirement um uh that residents wear masks in public spaces that's obviously not something you see a whole lot the governor suing a city um uh, and just yesterday, a conservative activist group sued uh California Governor Gavin Newsom over an order that um, that bars schools from reopening in counties that have really high rates of COVID. So um, we will continue to see this stuff. Uh, I, I think in, you know, in, in 50 years, we're going to look back and we're going to know a lot more about uh, the way that the sort of the emergency powers uh, of, of state governments when it comes to health crises like this, as a result of all these cases, they're all going to have 2020 next to their name. So next, we wanted to do something a little bit different for you guys. Amber and I had the opportunity to interview a bunch of general counsels at major companies about the challenges that they've faced during the coronavirus outbreak and, of course, the sort of economic calamity that came in its wake. We talked to attorneys for Procter & Gamble, Clorox, and Liberty Mutual, all of whom or all of which are... Obviously, you can tell from the companies are kind of uniquely suited to handle different challenges uh, responding to the coronavirus. And uh, I, we wanted to play some highlights. I would like to voice protest that I was uh, not invited to this. Um, I think Look, it's, Bill, I sometimes think these things happen. Alex and I have to do the serious work of per se. Um, <laughs> rank, <laughs> untru- yeah, rank dishonesty there from, we, from my co-host. We but, did yes. select these GCs to highlight industries that are obviously 
very impacted by COVID. I mean, consumer product goods and disinfectants for a couple mm-hmm. of days and insurance. It's insurance. really um, right in the mix of this yeah. uh, troublesome time. And we got this idea because um, Law360 is the co-sponsor of the Burton Awards. And last year we actually got to go and it was really fun. We got to interview um, a Second Circuit Judge Katzman, some other GCs that year. This year, of course, that ceremony got canceled by COVID-19. So what better to out, do yeah. when things are canceled by the virus to call these people and say, hey, in addition to this fun event that we could all be at together, what else is going on with you guys? More seriously, how are your companies handling yeah. the challenges of COVID? So first up, we talked with Procter & Gamble General Counsel Deborah Majoris. And Procter & Gamble, as most people probably know, makes you know scores of consumer products that are probably in your house right now. And they were right at the center of this demand for disinfectants and PPE that really came to dominate particularly the early days of the pandemic and even and uh, it's starting to sort of trend in that direction again. Um, but she had some interesting insights on the demands uh, of of the company during that time. Suddenly, our legal and government relations team, which is all part of, of, of our team, was just called into action to deal with the regulators to show them, A, we are an essential business. People need soap. People need toilet paper. <laughs> and so that was that was first order of business. Second, to show them we can be safe. We can, you know, first order of business, we can take care of the people who work for us and we have. So you heard Deborah there talking about how they first handled dealing with regulators, but then they actually had to pivot into even deeper regulatory waters as they started producing more PPE. I thought it was so interesting just the, you know, you remember the early days where there was, there was real fear that, you know, the store shelves were going to be empty and that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. these big companies with huge supply chains like Procter and Gamble were not going to be able to handle it. And there's, there's obviously a thicket of regulations and laws and all different jurisdictions that, you know, the lawyers have to jump on and sort of translate for the people who then make that supply chain function. For some of what we were making, we had to make sure we had um, uh, we had regulatory approval. Yeah. For example, we right. were doing some we were working together with other companies to do some filters for N95 masks, and so okay. um, so that that requires some of that. The other way um, in which we were involved in it is um, we have a, a citizenship group, and it's part it's partly legal and partly government relations. You know, all this has really come come together. Um, yeah. Uh, and and so we were we were also fielding a lot on the donations front. We also had to deal with issues like if we're donating these masks. I mean, these masks um, we know have certainly have utility in all of this, but they're not N95 yeah. masks, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we're donating them and someone should use one and get sick, you know, what does that mean, right? Uh-huh. right. So there were issues. There were issues like that as well oh, that see. legal that legal was that legal was dealing with. Yeah, so you can hear there just there's a lot that they had to jump into that isn't the normal course of business. And we later talked to Laura Stein, who's the GC for Clorox, and we talked about something that's definitely not the normal course of business for her. And that was some of the rumors and misinformation about the products they're offering the public. Um, in particular, I think a lot of people will remember that there was a point when even President Trump was suggesting that you could ingest some kind of disinfectant to fight COVID-19. And that really put a company like Clorox in a tough spot about how to deal with that. 
for us at Clorox and in the legal team and, and frankly with everybody, it's just so incredibly important to use disinfectants properly and under absolutely no circumstances should be they be ingested or injected. And so I'm glad we got you on the record on that. That's yep. that's that's great. It's important. I mean, <laughs> it it seems a little almost silly to have to talk about it, but it is important and it's the kind of misinformation that I think what is really problematic when people are already scared about what's going on in the world. Right. And and for us again, we've always tried to educate consumers about uh the importance of using our products safely and as directed um, because that's our responsibility. So we aren't making label changes. We feel our labels are clear. Um, But at the same time, you know, given some of the misinformation, Amber, you've talked about uh, and, and confusion uh, uh, by consumers and people, we're stepping up our consumer education you know, do's and don'ts on bleach usage, which we already have, you know, really we're focusing on, but we've stepped it up even more and we're collaborating with lots of social media partners and others. And so the lawyers, we, you know, at Clorox in, again, in our 107 years, our advertising and our marketing communications, everything's substantiated. And so nothing, it, it doesn't matter whether it's on social media or where it is. It's substantiated by Clorox lawyers and substantiated by our R&D folks if it's got a technical aspect. And so we're just partnering, as we always do, on uh, with the business, with R&D, with marketing, on how important it is to get uh, the right materials out there. And then, you know, Alex, you asked about other implications, uh, you know, clearly – we care a lot, and it wasn't just, uh, you know, any kind of speculation about um, uh, potential use of disinfectants, but but just our name has really been visible yeah, given yeah. that our essential products are so necessary for, for human health. So we are, you know, there, unfortunately, in, in every crisis, there are bad actors. And so we have seen uh, things like uh, you know, clearly, you know, false websites being set up to say that they're, um, you know, selling our products when they're not. They're trying to to get people's money and then disappear. We've seen right, right. lots of trademark infringement. And after that comment, you know, I think a lot of people got lots of memes making lots of jokes. But, you know, it's we work so hard uh, to, to, to not ever have anybody have in their head uh, you know, ingesting uh, product our products because of the the health implications of that, and so you know we were working hard with 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 different folks on really asking them to to stop and 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 take it down uh, to the extent uh, it involved our trademarks. And then we're even working on uh, price gouging. We've got you know uh, many of our lawyers right now have been since early days. Just we're we, we're cooperating with state and federal authorities and we're uh, cooperating with partners and different platforms and we're using artificial intelligence and we are uh, trying to scour because we believe especially in a pandemic our products which are so needed for public yeah, health yeah. are st- sold at standard prices and not gouged so that's you know so there's many things that we've been uh, quite busy okay. at in, in the, the Clorox legal department uh, Bill can you believe that we got an answer there that had a lot of stuff about trademarks and you weren't there for it I know it's. Uh, I I was thrilled to hear some discussion of trademarks. It's very interesting. I mean, the um, it's something we've seen 3M do a lot. These lawsuits, very sort of creative uh, trademark arguments to 
um, you know, to prevent price gouging, arguing that, you know, these ridiculously high prices reflect poorly upon the original company, ideas of being an authorized dealer and all that kind of stuff. Um, So it's very interesting to hear sort of the inner workings of that from uh, from Clorox. And we were uh, we were. We only had so much time um, um, with Laura, and I, I mean, I desperately wanted to hear more about the memes and what the legal <laughs> counsel of, 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 of major companies do about memes. Uh, we didn't quite have time for it, but it was an illuminating, uh, uh, illuminating answer nonetheless. So let's pivot a little bit away from consumer goods and talk about um, the last clip, which is from Jim Kelleher. He's the general counsel for Liberty Mutual. We've seen tons of insurance suits come up in the wake of this pandemic. And we wanted to talk to him because he represents one of the nation's largest insurers just to see how they're handling the volume and sort of this um, large coverage litigation, which is a different kind of thing than they might always be doing. In terms of the litigation arising out of coronas in terms of coverage, you know, we've seen other instances in the past of uh, large coverage litigation. You know, we, Sometimes it occurs out of a natural catastrophe, such as a hurricane yeah. um, or, or, or wildfires. Um, so we're pretty adept at mobilizing to, to deal with that. Now, obviously, you do have to have the technology. You have to have a fairly um, skilled workforce in litigation management. And you need to have you know very good relationships with outside law firms and particularly law firms that can help us with this particular set of problems. As you can imagine, it was a really, it was really interesting talking to Jim. As you can imagine, they certainly have their hands full in the wake of mass closures of things and all different, type, all, all different types of liability opening up. Near the end there, he was talking about their, the, the company's relationship with outside counsel, which is frankly something that we love to talk with general counsel about anytime we can, how they you know, sort of the interplay between in-house counsel and big law. And of course, that has that has really been at the focus of a lot of the coronavirus corporate response um, uh, that we've seen. Uh, we're going to, I think, swing back to Deb Majoris uh, at Procter & Gamble, who had some, uh, had some interesting insights on the outside counsel piece of it. People have come to me now, you know, even with the mind department and said, well, now what do we do? Um, you know, we're going to go, the, the, the world is going to go into an economic downturn. Yeah. You know, is now the time that you call up your law firms and say, you need to give me even greater discounts or you need to cut things mm-hmm. or what have you. And what I've told my team quite candidly is, um, you know, at least for now, look, that's not the way I want to have relationships with these law firms. Like, we should be pushing and demanding value from them year-round crisis or no crisis, right? And we should have the kind of, um, we should have the kind of uh, billing mechanisms and, and, you know, kind of creative alternative arrangements that we've done in the past that work for us. And we shouldn't now when things are going down and law firms are, you know, some law firms are really, are really already showing that they're preparing for this, right? By cutting staff and, and and laying off and so forth. Um, You know, to me, you don't continue to build those great relationships and have that those great resources right there for you if the first thing you do is say, oh, by the way, thank you so much. That was really, really helpful. Now cut everything by 20%. Right. Just that's, it's, it's, not, it's not the way I want to do business when I can help it. 
I think a lot of um, attorneys out there are going to really love that answer and hope that some other big companies take the same tactic, that they try to keep their relationships as normal as possible, even during these tough times. Well, and it was it was I thought it was so interesting that it was couched in not that like we don't want to gouge you now that or we don't want to try to extract concessions during this crisis we want to yeah. extract concessions all the time we want you know we, we well I, I don't mean that hey, in a bad way value, i just more sure. mean that like we we want value all the time and it doesn't make sense to now come at you when things are bad we just yeah. always yeah. need to sort of be having that discussion and making sure that there's value on both sides yeah, so um, just so the listeners have a sense of this, these are just some snippets of broader conversations we had. Um, a lot of that is going to be in on the Law360 website. We're going to do profiles of each of these GCs and the others that were among the winners of the Legends in Law from the Burton Awards this year. So those profiles start running on Monday. If you just head over to our website, you can read all about it. And with that, everybody, we'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Laura Stein, Jim Kelleher, and Deborah Majoris, and our contributing reporters, Brandon Lowry, Bill Weikert, and Abra Coe. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Per Se, leave us a written review. That really helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.